Oh, wait a second. We're doctors. What? <laughs> Brace yourself. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. I'm Dr. Mel Herbert. Next patient. Oh. I'm Dr. Jess Mason. It was so good, you guys. That was such a good joke. And I'm Dr. Oh. I'm just Dave Mason. <laughs> this is killing me. <laughs> the medical show about everything that's fun and interesting and educational for the non-physician in your life. Okay. Here we go. Uh, should we do this? Yeah. What are we ready? What are we doing? This. 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 <laughs> I can't. I someone hit the pause button on Mel. <laughs> we forgot how to do this. <laughs> I can't see. We're doing this remotely because, you know, we're all uh, hunkering down during this pandemic. So obviously this uh, one hurt a bit is back and we're doing a special pandemic edition because, you know, we're in the thick of it right now. Jess is literally on the front line seeing patients. Uh, we are a medical company uh, most of the time, so we've been very, very busy talking to the docs, talking to the nurses, getting them up to speed with all this stuff. But we thought that uh, you out there, our listeners, should also um, um, be hearing from people like Jess and myself and the experts about uh, what is this thing. So uh, let me give you the quick summary. This pandemic started probably in China. Um, the first case appears to have occurred about in November. It is probably uh, one of these situations where in these markets you have bats and sieverts and chickens and they're all in this uh, sort of very closed area and humans as well. And then you've got a mutation and um, you get this COVID-19 virus. So it is now spread throughout the world and a pandemic is defined as something that is infectious is lethal and is across the world. So we're now at that point. To timestamp this, it's March 20th here in the United States. We had our first case that we know about on January 14th. And now if you're watching the news, uh, you see in New York, they're having an explosion of uh, cases. So can I ask Jess a question? Jess, uh, what is COVID-19? Because my understanding yes. is that it's a coronavirus and that causes a cold. So what are we worried about? So... COVID-19 is the disease caused by this particular coronavirus, which, in case you're nerdy and really interested in virology, it's SARS-CoV-2. That's the official name for this virus. It's really similar to the SARS, I don't know, we could call it SARS-1 virus um, outbreak that happened several years ago, which was also a coronavirus. Now, if you get sick with this virus, then we call that disease COVID-19, which is coronavirus disease 2019. That's where that name comes from. And let me answer the second part of your question. You said that, well, what if I get coronavirus? Isn't it like a cold? And, you know, sort of other coronaviruses do cause symptoms like a common cold and they're not very deadly. But this one is different. And that's why it's getting all this special attention, because it is particularly deadly compared to all the other types of coronaviruses that you're probably exposed to all the time. And I should say for the record, uh, the reason that Jess knows so much about this is that we have this online medical textbook, a reference for clinicians throughout the world. And Jess wrote the chapter with you on COVID-19. Oh, that's right. I helped. Yeah, you helped just a little bit, as in we co-authored it. That's right. So we've been scouring literally all of the literature as it comes out every single day, and there's a lot, lots of preliminary reports from across the world and now reports from the United States. So we come to you with a significant amount of knowledge on this because we are reading everything. So Jess, you are seeing these patients in the emergency department on the front lines. What are the symptoms these people have? 
Okay, so the the most common symptoms, fever, but that's not saying that everyone's going to get fever. Only about half of people are going to have a fever. Cough, shortness of breath. Sometimes they're coughing up, hacking up some phlegm. You might have a sore throat. But really, the, the key ones that we keep honing in on are cough, fever, and shortness of breath. What's interesting is that we just started to get some reports two days ago that a lot of people from China were also having GI symptoms. We think of these viruses as mostly causing respiratory stuff, like a cough and the sneezing and the, maybe you get pneumonia. But um, a lot of these people had anorexia. Anorexia is loss of appetite. Thank you. You're welcome. Some had vomiting. Some even had diarrhea. So, and we don't want to cause a mass hysteria uh, and people running out and buying more toilet paper, but just know that that potentially is another symptom, these GI symptoms. So what we wanted to do was really gather here with Dave and let Dave be the voice of the people and fire questions at us, Dave, because we want to, you know, I feel like there's a lot of hysteria coming from the media and it's constantly reporting death tolls and how bad everything is and everyone's wearing these crazy space suits, but maybe not the key information that being relayed that people want to know about. So so you are the voice of the of the people. Okay. So I mean you had a good little explanation of what coronavirus is, but this is the first time I've ever heard the word coronavirus. Are there other types of coronavirus or is this just brand new out to kill us? There's about uh I don't know how many coronaviruses. There's a lot of coronaviruses. The common cold, there's about four viruses in that family that caused the common cold. So it's it's actually pretty common. And it's not uncommon for the virus to actually undergo a little bit of mutation and change. So maybe what's happened here is you've got a common cold virus that got stuck with a bat virus and maybe with some other virus, and then it mutated and became uh, a common cold-like virus, but way worse. Um, so there's lots and lots of these out there. Is there a type of coronavirus then that we will, would have heard of before? Like a common name or... It's really just the common cold. Like Mel said, there's a lot of things that fit under that umbrella. Mm. But the one that you've probably heard of is SARS yeah. and MERS, okay. which is Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. So yeah, those, are the, those are the other examples okay. of coronaviruses that have mutated into something much more deadly. And what does, uh, how does this virus infect you? How does it, how do you get it? I mean, because people are saying it's living on surfaces um, through people coughing on me, uh, breathing the same air you breathe. What, what's, what's the main way you get the coronavirus? Well, you just explained it. <laughs> oh, great. That now, oh, you get it every way. Yeah. Well, the way you get this is now is that if somebody has this, um, then they can be shedding the virus mostly in their upper airway, so through their nose and throat and stuff. So then they sneeze or they cough, and all that virus that's up in that upper airway gets fired into the air. And this is a virus that sort of lives in the little droplets that uh, you spray out and um, floats around. So if you cough in somebody's face or sneeze on somebody and they breathe that in, then the virus can get into them and then start replicating in that person, and then they can spread it on from there. Now, this virus is also probably present in blood. We haven't seen any blood spread. It actually might also be present in your poopy. So potentially you could get it if you pooped on the ground and then um, ate it or somebody came along and ate it or something like that. Wait, um, I would have it already though. If I pooped and ate my poop, I'd already have it. Yeah, that's true. It. Somebody would have to eat your poop. Okay. But it's mostly um, it's mostly this thing called respiratory droplets. So if you also sneeze onto a surface, then all of that fluid from your disgusting upper airway goes onto the surface and the virus is living in those little droplets 
droplets and can probably live there for a few days. So if some other unfortunate person comes by, puts their hand on your keyboard that you sneezed on and then rubs their eye or sucks their thumb or whatever it is, then they can get the virus that way as well. The good news about this, though, it's very infectious. It's more infectious than flu, but it's much less infectious than something like measles. If you uh, have measles and you go into a room with like 10 people, just by breathing, the measles virus goes up in the air and it stays there forever and it's very infectious and you'll infect like 7 out of 10 people. This one is much less infectious than that, and that's good. So you can get it from other people, but if you just sort of stand six feet away, uh, wipe things down, wash your hands really well, you're much less likely to get it. Mel, you joke about pooping on the ground and someone eating it, but fecal-oral transmission is a real thing, and that's how a lot of diseases get transmitted because someone does poop, and then a tiny microscopic amount of that poop when they wipe their butt is on their fingers, they don't wash their hands well enough, they prepare food, someone else eats that food, and now you're eating microscopic amounts of poop, and then you're getting infected that way. And we don't really know how much of a role that plays in this particular coronavirus, but potentially that's a mode of transmission as well. Wash your hands, you're disgusting. <laughs> so going back to what you said is the the virus can live on different surfaces. That's a lot of concern people have on online and um, just people I talk to, like going out and getting my mail from the mailbox. Could the virus live on a letter that has been addressed to me and was sent to me next day? Not it didn't take three days to get to me. It took next day. I understand the concern with that because one of the things that came out in this report that you're referring to is how long it can live on cardboard. And so everyone's like, oh, my God, it's coming in the mail. Um, so remember that these numbers that you're hearing. So we're what, what's being quoted is from one particular study where they're basically just swabbing things and checking to see if viral particles are there and how many of them. So it's saying like oh, in the air. The virus is probably there for several hours, but on various surfaces, it's probably there for many hours and potentially a few days. But remember that this is um, decreasing at an exponential rate. So if someone with coronavirus sneezes on the table and I swab the table, there's going to be a lot of viral particles. And in a few hours, there's still going to be a lot, but it's decreasing rapidly over time because that those viruses, they can't just live on a table forever. They need human cells in order to replicate their DNA or their RNA, rather. So if this table was made out of skin, that would be a problem. Well, it would need to be live cells that it gets into. <laughs> okay. and if this was a living skin table. We don't have a skin table. I'm um, so glad. That's <laughs> disgusting. Um, but but yeah, this, this is decreasing with time. So even though that report might say something that sounds scary, like, oh, the virus is still there tomorrow morning, it's still there, but in way yeah, fewer right. numbers. And is that are those numbers enough to actually make you sick? So what that really translates to in real life is less clear. Yeah, I think people can get really hysterical about it. So um, it's the good news is that cardboard wasn't as good as just sort of like a plain surface. And remember also that the cardboard and the stuff that's coming to you in the mail is also often it takes a few days and it'll die or it's sitting out in the sunlight as it's getting transported and putting onto trucks and maybe that sunlight is affecting it as well. So I wouldn't freak out too much. It's theoretically possible but it's extremely unlikely. It's much more likely you're going to get this not from a cardboard. You're much, much more likely to get it from somebody who's sick and sneezing and they're right next to you. So social isolation, spreading yourself apart from people uh, can really protect you. I think, you know, worrying about whether Amazon is going to send you a little coronavirus in the mail, I don't think is that big yeah, a deal. I didn't order that with Prime. <laughs> 
So there is a real fear then if I'm walking around Target and somebody coughs and creates a cloud and I walk through that cough cloud, I could I could swallow it or it get in my eyes and the next day I got coronavirus. Yeah, that's exactly the concern. And that's why uh, right now the recommendation is social distancing. Stay away from people. Don't go out to the store unless you really need to, um, because who knows what you're being exposed to. And someone who sneezes, maybe they otherwise feel well, so they thought it'd be fine to go out to the grocery store and they sneeze. And then you walk through that sneeze cloud or cough cloud and then you contract the virus. And you wouldn't even know yourself for a few days because it takes several days before you actually start to feel symptoms. Right. Let's talk about symptoms. What what am I going Going to feel in the first few days or day of have of getting coronavirus how do i differentiate that between a cold or the flu well it feels and looks like a cold or a flu Right. <laughs> because it is. Right. It's just another sort of cold-like virus. Um, so it acts very much the same. You're going to have aches and pains, and then you're going to have some sniffles, and then you're going to have some sneezing and coughing, and maybe you're going to get some of these uh, GI symptoms, and your tummy is not going to feel very good. But it looks just like them, and that's the problem. Jess uh, might be a great doctor, but she can't really look at you and say, that is a cold virus, or that is a flu virus, or that is the COVID virus. Um because they all look very similar. And so what happens is this gets more and more prevalent is that everybody, you know, probably half the population will eventually end up getting this. And there's no good way to tell them apart. So uh, you can do some testing, um, but during this epidemic, you just have to assume if you have a cold, it's probably the bad one. So, okay, testing. Should I be tested pre-symptoms? Or once I start to get symptoms, should I be tested? And even if I got tested, would it even matter if I knew if I had it or not? Would it change any kind of treatment? That's a really good question. It's a good series of questions. The first question was, if I don't have symptoms, should I get tested? Yeah. No, you should not. There's there's nothing to test. Um, even if you did have it, I don't even know if that test would be positive. Would that test come back and be anything reliable? Uh, probably not. Because so, it hasn't multiplied enough into my system to show up on any kind of swab? Right, right. So there's no point if you have no symptoms, you feel well, there's no point in being tested. If you have symptoms, yeah. this is this is now a bit controversial. You know, at what point should you go in for testing? I would say that if you feel symptoms, but you otherwise feel like you're doing okay, like this just kind of feels like a cold, you're not feeling like really, really ill from this, just stay home. You know, like you said, what's the point of going out and getting a test? It, it may change things for some people, but for the majority of people, just continue to stay home and stay away from people. If you, you know, are a person who has, let me call you an at-risk person, okay. someone who has an immune system disorder, right. uh, like you're a cancer patient on chemotherapy would be the obvious one, or maybe you are a diabetic, or you are an older person, or you are pregnant, not you, Dave, but someone is right. pregnant, an at-risk person should probably get tested because that's really going to change things in terms of what you do and what the advice is that your doctor would give to you. You had a third question. Well, no, I said just if it would it change anything if I did find out, would mm. the treatment be mm -hmm. any different? Oh, treatment. That's a great topic. Mel, why don't you start us off talking about how do, how do we treat coronavirus? We don't, unfortunately. Um, there is no uh, tr proven therapy for this virus yet. And so this goes back to the testing thing. Well, 
if I get a test and I'm positive, what do I do differently? For the vast majority of people, you don't do anything differently. You just have to sort of suffer it out, stay at home, uh, drink uh, your fluids and do those normal things and watch Netflix and, and it will run its course and then you'll have antibodies against it. So there is no specific therapy and that's a problem because for the vast majority of people, it's just going to act like a cold or a flu and you're going to feel bad for you know some days, maybe a couple of weeks, and then you'll get better. But uh, some people get really, really sick with this, mostly the elderly, mostly those people with other sort of medical problems. But there isn't any specific treatment right now. We're looking desperately for treatments for those people, and you hear about lots of them in the news. But currently, there's no specific therapy to make this shorter, to shorten the course of this. There's no vaccine. That's probably at least a year away. So again, with the testing, if uh, the test is positive and I don't, can't really do anything for the vast majority of people, testing is probably not a big deal. The reason it's good to do a lot of tests during an epidemic is just to sort of find out where it is and to learn a little bit about it. But uh, you can't do anything specific about this thing yet, or at least we don't know if there's anything we can do. We're trying to find something because these old people really get very sick sometimes and we need to find something to help them while we're waiting for a vaccine. But we haven't found anything yet. So that's what I'm hearing, that the test would only be helpful because if I knew I had it, then I could stay away from people that are more susceptible and would have worse symptoms than I would. Right. And another factor in all of this is how available is the test right yeah, now? How available is it? Because like Korea apparently did it over a weekend. <laughs> they like tested everybody in a weekend. Um, so it's becoming more and more available. Luckily, we're not completely dependent on just the testing from county health departments, like the government testing. That is, you know, a portion of the testing. But fortunately, um, some private companies have really ramped up their production and their ability to run tests. And so we're, we're now able to run more tests, but still not meeting the total demand in the, in the population. If everyone in, in the country who had cold symptoms wanted to get a test, there's no way we could accommodate all of that. So, you know, it's, it's a good question. Should I go for a test? You know, and at what point do I go? So to summarize, I would say if you are one of those at-risk persons, you should get tested. Or if you're someone who takes care of an at-risk person, you should get tested because it changes how we advise you in terms of your home isolation. And if you are like really feeling sick, like not just cold symptoms, but you're feeling like you really are struggling to catch your breath and you're coughing really hard and you're feeling very, very fatigued and your pulse is fast. These are concerning signs and symptoms that we you might actually need to be admitted to the hospital. Yeah, the other reason that we don't want everybody to get tested until we really do have a, enough tests for everybody is because people like Jess really need to have access to the test. So if if she's got a little runny nose and it's just a normal cold, it's okay for her to go to work and she can wash her hands and you know not you know spread her cold around. But if she's got this one, if she's got COVID nineteen, she should really stay at home because she's looking after sick people in the hospital oh, yeah. and uh, she can infect them. So for healthcare workers, it's really important that they have access to the test first and other sort of and really important groups and celebrities and NBA <laughs> Tom players. Hanks. It's important, Tom. <laughs> Hanks has his test delivered to his hotel when room. When Tom Hanks tweets, it's news. That's true. Well, Tom is different. I mean, he's very, very important. Yeah, he so, makes good movies. He's a national treasure as far as exactly. he's concerned. I'm, I, I agree. love Tom Hanks. I agree. I want him to be well. I don't think of myself as a hero. Not at all. Now, the 
reason that I, let's say I'm just a normal lay person and I'm just hanging out at home and I've got the symptoms, the reason that I would want a test, even though I probably don't really need a test right now, is I just want to know if I got it so that, okay, I've got it and I survived. Thank you. That means I've probably um, got antibodies and I'm not going to get it again and I'm going to be okay. So I'd want to know if that horrible flu-like cold thing that I had was this bad one and that I survived. But that's not a, a good enough reason yet. The good news is that home testing should be available soon-ish. So if they can really ramp up production, um, you won't have to go in and, and potentially infect a healthcare worker or somebody else. And you might be able to be able to do this test at home in the future. I don't know exactly when that's going to come out, but that would be something that would be pretty cool. So I feel bad, but I don't need to go to the hospital. And I did a home test and it was like a pregnancy test. It came up blue. Mel, you've got the virus. Congratulations. Or happy face, red, it's face. negative. Yeah. <laughs> but that's probably a, a ways off. There's a lot of good other question, follow-up questions to everything you guys are talking about that people are scared and myths flowing around. And hopefully we'll get those by the like the end of the show. But I kind of want to just ask the big broad questions first. Okay. Um, another question I have is, what are you actually dying of when you get coronavirus? Like, like with the flu, I don't die of, quote-unquote, the flu. I die of dehydration mm -hmm. or something else. Yeah. So this coronavirus causes a viral pneumonia. So just like any other kind of pneumonia, this is the most common reason why people are dying. It causes a very bad type of pneumonia where a bunch of fluid goes into your lungs and puts you into basically a respiratory failure in a mm. small subset of patients. This is not, you know, everyone, but people who sure. are actually dying. That's what's going on. And also other organ systems are failing. So they might go into kidney failure. They might go into heart failure. But it's primarily a respiratory failure because of all this fluid fluid that's leaking into the lungs and then you can't breathe. And even if we have ventilators and all of this amazing technology to do our best to try to keep you alive, it can be really hard to to push air and get oxygen into your lungs when it's working against all this, you know, fluid in the lungs. Would the flu do that too? Is that how people die from the flu? Yes, people can die from the flu for similar reasons, but the, this coronavirus is thought to cause a lot more of this, mm. this syndrome, which if anyone's curious, it's acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, if anyone's curious and wants to look that up. But that's, that's the syndrome that we're talking about with all this kind of leaking and fluids rushing into the lungs. Okay, so on, on that topic, how deadly is the coronavirus? Because you see really like a number swaying all over the place depending on country, depending on culture, depending on age. So what, what's how, how bad is this compared to flu? This is actually, we know a little bit, we're learning more every day, but it's certainly much more deadly than flu. And that's the problem with this thing. It's actually a little more infectious than flu, so it's easier to catch and it's more deadly. So it's sort of a double whammy. It appears, if you look at the data from China and other places, that about 1% to 2% of people who get this um, might die. Now, it might be less than that when we finally finish up testing everybody because we tend to test right now just the people who are sickest. So once we do all our testing, maybe it's going to be less than that. Um, but you do see these numbers that are a little bit concerning from Italy where it's much higher than that. Uh, there are places like in Germany where it appears to be much lower than that and South Korea as well. But it's somewhere around, let's say, you know, one to 2%, which would put it about five to 10 to 20 times more deadly than flu. And flu kills, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people a year here just in the United States. Now, 
The good news, if you can call it good news, is that it mostly affects the elderly. So if you're over the age of 75 or 85, if you've got other um, lung diseases or kidney diseases or, or renal disease that tend to occur in older people, that's the group that it seems to be most deadly in. And that's obviously a tragedy, but a far worse tragedy if it killed young people. And it's not killing the kids. I don't think we've still had any deaths in anybody under the age of nine. Um, so it's mostly are really harming the elderly, but I should say for the record a hundred thousand times, uh, anybody can catch this and you can certainly spread it. And there are some young people that will get very sick from this and relatively young people can even die from this. So don't be thinking young people that you're completely immune. You can get it, you can spread it, and uh, you can certainly get super, super sick from it. Yeah, I think young people can feel this false sense of confidence, like, I'm fine, I'm going to go out and continue to live my life. Well, you are the contagion. You are the person who is going to go out and infect your grandparents and someone else's grandparents. And just remember, even if you feel well, that doesn't mean that you don't necessarily have it and you can't be spreading it to other people who could get very sick and die. Okay, let's say I get coronavirus. How infectious am I before I start really getting sick? And then after I'm all better, am I still infectious like a week afterwards? Well, there's a lot of speculation and no one really knows for sure. But I could tell you this. When you get the virus, you aren't going to have symptoms for those first few days while you're incubating the virus, while it's replicating inside of you. And on average, that goes on for about five days before you start to show symptoms. But sometimes it goes on for two weeks before you start to show symptoms. And in all that time leading up to you having symptoms, it's unclear how many of those days you actually could be spreading it to other people. You probably can be. It's very, very likely. And there's there's some reports showing that that is happening. But I don't think that that's probably the peak time of when you are the most infectious. It's probably when you're coughing and sneezing because then you're exploding all your viral particles all around the, the room and to other people. So that's probably when you're the most infectious. And then once you start to recover, you're probably still shedding some of that virus. So if you're still coughing, sneezing, breathing, you're probably still infectious, but probably not quite as infectious as when you are the peak of your symptoms. And again, a lot of this is speculation. Why is it going after the Italians? What's what's up with the Italians? That is a super interesting question, and it's really not clear. So the mortality in Italy right now, and they're right in the midst of it. They're about a week or two ahead of us in the United States. So they're having a huge outbreak in one particular area of Italy, which is a very wealthy area of Italy. And their mortality appears to be very, very high, like you know, nearly 10 times higher than in Germany, for example. And it's not clear. Is it just because they haven't done enough tests yet? Maybe there's many more people infected that are doing fine. Um, is it because Italy tends to have a pretty uh, old population? There's a lot of people over the age of 65. Is it because there's a lot of smokers in Italy? Um, is it just that Italians have a gene which makes it uh, easy for the bug to get in? I don't know. Hmm. And we won't know until this sort of thing plays itself out Maybe. and we have a better idea. So what ab what, what about other pre-existing conditions? Like I have a friend who's got really bad asthma and he got that asthma because of his, well, I think when he was a teenager, he had really awful pneumonia. And now I guess this asthma is maybe a side effect from that scarring or that past problem. So he's really worried that he might be more susceptible to coronavirus or maybe not more susceptible, but if he got it, it would it would hurt him more than the average person. Is that 
Is there a truth there? Well, I don't know how much validity there is in the connection that your friend is making between pneumonia and the past. Okay, so that's the first problem. So that's the one problem there. But aside from that, let's just, the the root of the question here is certain people are going to get more sick because they have underlying lung conditions or other conditions. And that's true. Anyone who has baseline bad lung function is going to have a harder time Mm. fighting this and is going to be more likely to get more sick. I think with with something like asthma, that's a huge spectrum. I mean, some people have Mm. asthma and they're really just fine and occasionally. You know, they they run a little bit for exercise and then they use their inhaler and then they feel fine. That's very mild. Someone who's on steroids all the time or frequently and, you know, dependent on lots of medications for their asthma is much more severe. That's a very different situation. and I'd be more worried about that person. And there's a few other groups that we are worried about. So underlying lung disease is one, but underlying heart disease and that could be anything, you know, heart failure, past heart attacks, or elevated blood pressure. If you have hypertension, that looks like it's associated with more severe illness. And diabetes is another one that looks like it's associated with more severe illness. Was there a connection with steroids and... What, there, was, what was that? There is. So so a couple things with the steroids. First okay. of all, if you're on steroids all the time, we consider you to be immunosuppressed. Oh, so you're in that category. There's a reason I'm on it. Yeah. Okay. So you're in that category of patients we're more concerned about. You're an at-risk person. Got it. Um, and then the other thing that steroids kind of come up in the in this discussion of coronavirus um, is because it, it was, it's been looked at, do steroids potentially help or hurt someone who has the disease? And it looks like they hurt. Um, and so if you have it, then w- you would not be, in general, we wouldn't be treating you with steroids. Okay, how how is coronavirus any different, this outbreak any different than some of the ones we experienced in the past, like swine flu and bird flu and Zika and Ebola? I mean, these all seem to be just as serious diseases and viruses. How come coronavirus is basically crushing the economy and making us all like hold up in our houses? Um, it's different in that um, it's first of all, much more deadly than flu. So that's first thing. So it's going to kill a lot more people. It's more infectious than the flu. Even in an aggressive flu season, this appears to be more infectious than even really aggressive uh, flu and sort of the H1N1, which was about 10 years ago. It's more infectious. It's more deadly than that. Um, The good news is it's less deadly than Ebola. So Ebola is bad because if you get it, you're going to die lots of the time. Fortunately, Ebola isn't as infectious, so it's harder to catch it. Mm. You, you have to really have to have more exposure to sort of blood and, and secretions than just sort of sneezing. Um, so uh, it's less deadly than SARS, but you, you probably heard about SARS a number of years ago. Yeah. That was really bad, but SARS wasn't as infectious in, as this. So SARS killed a lot of uh, healthcare workers and it killed a lot of uh, close contacts of people, but it wasn't as spreadable as this. So this is sort of a... Not quite a perfect storm, but it is a bad storm because it's very infectious and it's you know very high mortality, particularly in the elderly population. So overall, it's much worse than any of those things. It'll end up killing many more people than any of those things that you noted. This is a lot like the Spanish flu of uh, 1918, and that was a flu virus, which is a little different, but it was very similar. It was pretty infectious and pretty deadly, and so it killed lots and lots of people. But it's not the perfect storm. The perfect storm is the one you see in all the movies, right? It's, uh, in the movies, it's a virus that's super infectious. You're just like walking around and you catch it and super deadly and turns you into a zombie every time. Yeah. Uh, this isn't that bad. It's like, it would be, it would be Ebola that became contagious through air. That would be the worst case scenario. That'd be scary, yeah. Very scary. That is the thing that like public health 
people are most concerned about. And this is sort of as bad as this is, this is actually an opportunity, a dry run, as it were, for what could be much worse. If this was much more deadly and much more infectious, which potentially could happen, um, it could just be devastating. And so this is our opportunity, although it's terrible right now, to get this right, to learn how to do this well, to do social distancing, to get the healthcare system back up and uh, on its feet and to have enough masks and gloves for people, because this could have been much worse. Yeah, so social distancing, we've said this already. Can you give me a good definition of what social distancing is? And how is social distancing different than being quarantined or uh, the quote-unquote shelter in place or the stay at home? How does, what are the differences between all those terms? Think of social distancing as an overall concept that we're going to avoid mass gatherings. We're going to avoid highly trafficked public places. There's a lot of techniques within social distancing. But social distancing is the idea. Stay away from mass gatherings and lots of people so we can limit the spread and the rate of the spread of the virus. And then multiple tactics within social distancing, right? So um, shelter in place, for example. That's basically stay at home. And don't go out unless it's really an essential thing that you have to do or if you work at a job where you, you have to keep coming to work like your health care provider or firefighter or pharmacist, something like that. Um, so there's multiple different tactics for maintaining social distancing, like the six feet rule, right? Try, mm-hmm. If you're going to go out, try to stay six feet away from people whenever possible. It's another tactic of social distancing. And that the amount of social distancing and just the sort of distance really depends on the virus. So because this is a pretty, uh, you know, contagious virus, but it's carried on droplets, if you're about six or eight feet from somebody and they're not trying to sneeze on you or spit on you, that's usually enough distance for the virus to not, um, for you not to not catch the virus. If this was a virus which was much more contagious that um, just sort of was able to float in the air like something like measles, the appropriate social distance might be something more like 50 feet uh, to really stay away from people because their viruses are sort of hanging around them and and all around the air near them. So um, six feet is sort of like the number we're using for this because it's in droplets. And you're seeing... uh, what all of this is about, all of this social distancing and uh, getting people to stay at home and doing all this stuff is all about this concept of flattening the curve. Have you heard of flattening the curve, Dave? Oh, yeah. That's that's everywhere. That's that's the new hashtag. So uh, just tell us what flattening the curve is all about because uh, we're flattening it for you, Jess, yeah. in your okay. hospital. So if you can imagine a bell curve with a steep rise, are you imagining that? Yeah. Okay. So Like a giant pointy pimple. Exactly. Right. And so if that's the rate of cases over time, then this curve that we're kind of expecting is a sharp rise in the number of cases of coronavirus in a short amount of time. And that's concerning because there's only so many hospital beds and doctors and nurses and ICU beds and ventilators. So if we get that sharp rise in a short amount of time, it's very quickly going to peak over the available resources that we have to take care of the whole population of sick people. It's just going to get so pointy that it's going to explode with pus. Sure. So what we want to do is flatten the curve, which means we want that rate of spread to slow down. So instead of a really sharp increase, it's going to be a much more gradual rolling rolling hill, right? It's going to spread that out over a longer period of time. Now, we're still expecting there to be a lot of cases, but if it doesn't rise way above the the 
the amount of resources that we have available, then we can actually take care of people as they get sick and come to us. So that's the idea that we're flattening out the curve from a sharp rise to a much more gradual, slower rise over a greater amount of time. So we're flattening the curve, basically, we're just trying to build in more time for resources to to combat this. For resources, for uh, hopefully we can develop a vaccine. Now that's going to take some time, but, you know, treatments that we can discover and try uh, test out and make sure that they're safe. But anything that we can do to, to prolong the amount of time uh, before tons of people get sick so that way we can deploy treatments, vaccines, and have enough resources to take care of people. How come we don't have any kind of vaccine for this? It seems like every year... They can create made up flu vaccines for the anticipated flu for that year. Um, I mean, <laughs> they just like, in, like, oh, it's going to be this flu this year. I'm going to take a guess and I'm going to make a vaccine for it. Um, and they just seem to do this on a regular basis, so much so that it's like free. You just walk in and somebody will give you a vaccine. But with coronavirus, if it's already been out there, it just seems like this is the first time anyone's discovered it. And now we have to create create something that's never been created before. Why is that? Well, you sort of answered your own question with that, you know, f the flu, they're, they're pretty good at looking what strains of flu around and then they sort of try and guess what's going to be the predominant type of flu for that year and then they start making the vaccine. And so that's why sometimes with flu season, uh, they get a really good vaccine, which protects you almost completely and other times it's not as good. So it's a lot about sort of testing what flu is out there and looking in the Southern Hemisphere and uh, because they have a different season than us and, and then trying to guess what's going to be the flu for uh, the next season and start making the vaccine beforehand. And they're generally pretty good at it, although it's not perfect. But as you said, this is a brand new virus. This is uh, like a common cold virus, sure, but it's got little pieces of DNA from bats and other things in there, which we've never seen before. So they have to start the process from ground zero. They have to try and uh, create a vaccine. And then that's one part of it, then you've got to test the vaccine and make sure it doesn't produce more harm than good. And then you've got to test it in a large group of people. And then you've got to make the vaccine. Then you've got to distribute the vaccine. And then you've got to get it to everybody. And that process, as good as we've gotten at making vaccines over the last sort of 75 years, that process takes probably at least a year from when you start to when it's actually deployable out in the world and maybe as long as 18 months. So when you hear people, very powerful people saying, we're going to have a great vaccine in just a few months, it's not going to happen. You need at least about a year to get it done. Although what's very interesting is how fast the science is moving. There has already been testing in human subjects on a vaccine that happened just a few days ago, which I believe was within, it was either 60 or 65 days from when the Chinese shared the, the genome with us. So it's already it's already being tested. It needs time to do lots of trials and safety checks before everyone starts getting it and then mass production, of course. So that's what takes time. But I would say it's moving at lightning speed and it's amazing how fast it's happening. Yeah, the, the key is that testing part and then creating enough of it and deploying it. Um, there was a vaccine a number of years ago, which was for kids for diarrhea, and it looked great and it was wonderful. And then we started giving it to kids. And then it turned out that it had this side effect where the kids basically intestines would swallow their intestines and they had to take it off the market. So um, we don't know um, 
you don't know that there couldn't be some side effects from the vaccine. So you have to do this testing, you have to do the deployment, but it is impressive. It used to be back in the day, it would take years and years and years to get a vaccine. But by the use of supercomputers and modeling and all of this new techniques, the fact that you could potentially get one out there to the world in a year is stunning yeah, to me. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So Jess, at the hospital, pre-coronavirus, what... What's the difference then and and now in terms of seeing patients and and your personal protection of seeing those patients? Okay, from my perspective or the patient perspective? Both. Okay. Well, um, I think we're being very cautious as the people providing care because we don't want to be sick, even if we're not having symptoms, um, to be potentially spreading the virus to other people. So we're being very, very cautious. Now, if you are the patient and you're coming into the emergency department, which, by the way, you don't need to come to the emergency department. We are not your only source of testing. You should come to us if you think you're having an emergency. Uh, and if someone else can run a test for you and you think you're having symptoms of coronavirus and, and aren't sure if you need a test, contact your primary care doctor. They might be able to run the test. County Health might be able to run the test. Urgent cares or also emergency departments. But we don't want an influx of people who are just showing up saying, I got a sniffly nose and I think I want a test. Um, but if you do come to the emergency department, say you got a cough, fever, maybe you're a little short of breath and you, you show up to the ER. It's going to be different at every single hospital. I can tell you right now how it's working today, and that might be totally different tomorrow. But before you even make it into the door, you're going to be greeted by a nurse who's going to do an initial triage assessment. So they're going to ask you some questions, ask you about your symptoms. And right now, depending on the risk factors you have, have you been exposed to someone who has coronavirus or been to an area where they have multiple cases? Right now, fortunately, in Fresno, we don't have a lot of cases. So we're still screening this way. And if you say yes to those questions, you're not coming into the ER. We have a tent set up. And so you're going to be brought over to a tent and uh, brought in as a patient. And all of the healthcare personnel who are going to interact with you are all going to be very cautious because, again, we don't want to get it and then spread it to a bunch of people who are immunocompromised and are, are at risk persons. So we're going to be wearing the full garb. We're going to be like wearing. You guys are dressed up like in the hazmat outfits? No, no, no. Like not, when, you not found, the when they suit. found ET and. <laughs> No, not the spacesuit, uh, but like what people wore during the Ebola outbreak. But we're going to be wearing gowns. Okay. We're going to be wearing gloves, um, face masks that seal tightly around. And many of us are wearing eye shields and sometimes goggles that seal around our face. So we're going pretty cautious in terms of how we're going to try to protect ourselves. And there's also a question of how long can we sustain that? Because what what do we do when that supplies runs out? So we're trying to protect ourselves the best we can, kind of put all the people together, um, not like you're sitting right next to each other. We're maintaining several feet of distance, trying to maintain that six feet That's of distance between people. It is a very big tent. Yeah. And then um, you may not even see a doctor in person. I may call from like an iPad. And does it roll up? It does. Like on a robot? <laughs> no, I don't sit, like sit there with a remote control. Um, a, a nurse will roll up the iPad right up to the chair where you're sitting and then I'll interact with you that way. This is, of course, in someone who looks pretty well. If you look sick or if you have vital signs that are not normal, like a fast heart rate or you're breathing too fast or your oxygen is too low, you're not going in the tent. You're coming into the ER and we're going to put you in an isolation room and do a full in-person assessment there. But in many cases, we're able to do these assessments over just an iPad. Um, and send the see the quote unquote see the patient and discharge them from the tent, so they're never even coming into the ER, potentially infecting a whole lobby full of people who could get really really sick. 
what are the dangers to pregnant women and kids? Because you hear these kind of stories that kids might not even feel the effects of it. Mm-hmm. Mel, I'll answer the question about pregnant patients, and maybe you could answer the pediatric question. In pregnant patients, there's very, very limited information to guide us right now. And so I think as a medical community, we're being very cautious and protective over our pregnant patients. Uh, there's one study that looked at a a small number of pregnant women who got coronavirus while they were pregnant and delivered babies and they had good outcomes and the babies had good outcomes and it wasn't found to be in the breast milk. But that was testing six people's breast milk. So we can't make big conclusions over just looking at what happened with six people, right? We can look at what happened with SARS and MERS. And that was actually very concerning what happened to pregnant patients in terms of the mother and the outcomes with the babies. And so I'm considering pregnant patients to be one of those at-risk persons. Uh, Multiple persons are at risk in that case. um, And they should be very cautious about who you're being exposed to. And if you get it, you should be very closely monitored by your obstetrician. And when it comes to kids, as I said before, the good news is that uh, kids don't get as sick as uh, elderly patients. We've had no deaths under the age of nine yet, although that, you know, in a huge outbreak that still might occur. But it looks like kids are protective. It's not clear why. It might be some of the infectious disease people think that maybe because kids are so covered with COVID-like, no, kids are so covered in coronavirus all the time, <laughs> giving it to each other, sneezing on each other, that may have meant that they've got uh, lots of protection. Whatever it is, uh, the younger kids seem to be okay. That doesn't mean they can't spread it. We don't really have a lot of information about that yet. Um, and then depends on what you define as a kid. Certainly, uh, there are people that are over the age of um, nine that have died. So it's not completely protected. But as you get older and older and older, it gets worse and worse and worse. But um, the little kids seem to be pretty protected for reasons that are unclear. Um, I think we covered a lot. Um, should we just start shooting off questions? Like, Yeah, I think there's a lot of myths that are out there. Um, a lot of good questions came to us on social media. Give us some of those, Dave. Yeah, I'll just start shooting them at you. Okay, handling money. Safe? Not safe? Uh, I would say if you don't need to use money, don't. Paperless um, would be better, I think. You know, it's probably not as big deal as it used to be. It used to be that like a dollar note would be handled by like 15 people in one day. And if one person was sneezing all over it, then that might be a problem. It's probably, we use less and less money now anyway. But if you don't need to use it and you can sort of do tap to pay with your phone, I would do that. But I wouldn't be too worried about it. The key thing is, if you're going to go into the world during a pandemic like this, the virus is going to be out there. It's going to be on some services. It's going to be on some money. It's going to be on some places. And that's why you hear over and over again, the single best thing you can do is after you go out and you live your life and do some things and go to the grocery store, when you come home, wash your hands really well. Wash them really well because you may have picked up some virus along the way. And bring some hand sanitizer with you. If you if I was touching money, I'd be sanitizing my hands. And if I had a job where I, if I was still working and touching money all the time, I would either be wearing gloves or frequently using hand sanitizer. And it's amazing how hard it is to not touch your face. Oh, yeah. So this is why the other advice is try not to touch your face because, you know, you, you touch something and then you scratch an itch. And before you know it, you've just transplanted the virus from the dollar bill right onto your right. nose. And now I haven't thought about it the whole entire time. But now that you said don't scratch your face, all I want to do is grab my face and claw at it. Yeah. <laughs> There's that funny meme, and it's. Uh, it, I feel bad that she has this meme, but there's like a some Department of Health person was giving the spiel and saying really great things, and don't touch your face, and then she licks her finger, 
and turns the page no. of her notes no. and we're like, no. See? But that was sort of a reminder yeah. that here's somebody telling you not to do it it's and they, did, so it. And they did it. It's so hard not yeah. to. Can I get coronavirus and, and give it to my pet or can my pet get coronavirus from someone else and then give it to me? No. That even, one's simple. That even one's if simple. it's like, even if that pet, if my dog licked the face of some friend of mine who had it, and then my dog ran over to me, and okay. I didn't know about it, and the dog licked my face like, oh, Poochie, <laughs> would I then get it? Maybe, maybe. But I, So the way I interpreted your question is, if I get it, and then can I give it to my dog, and then my dog gets sick, and then he gives it to someone else, and, and that's, it doesn't go through dogs and Okay, well, forget about like dog that. getting sick. But just carries it to me. It could carry it. Pretend someone sneezes on your dog's fur yeah. and blasts coronavirus all over little our little doggy. <laughs> And then you pet the dog and then touch your face. Yeah, theoretically, you could get it that way. Okay. Right. Just like any other surface. object or yeah, surface. Right. Yeah. And in medicine, we call that a fomite. A fomite is anything that could potentially have pathogens land on it and then get transmitted to someone else. So my keyboard is a fomite. My white coat is a fomite. My dog might be a fomite. And if your pet is a bat that has this coronavirus <laughs> and it bites you, yeah, your pet could give it to you. <laughs> Don't eat it. Actually, one of the theories right now is that the bat had the disease, then pooped on something. An anteater. An anteater who then was got eaten. infected, and then it was the anteater that was eaten. So there, there's some other animal that's involved, and no one really knows right now. But not my dog. That's good. <laughs> my poor little doggy. Can I go to the gym still? No. There's a lot of metal surfaces and sweaty people at the gym. Is this like a good idea? No. I'm feeling like a it's not idea. a good idea. This is not a good idea. Yeah, you got a lot of people that are breathing really hard and sweating and then coughing and touching surfaces. This is not a good day to go to the gym. This is your excuse to stay home, get fat and watch Netflix. Yeah, I don't need many excuses. <laughs> What's up with the masks? Why is everyone buying like construction masks and... Because from what I understand, the little white mass you buy when you go up in the attic so you don't breathe in fiberglass isn't going to help against viruses. Okay, so those masks, the, the the construction mask, or for us, that's sort of a, sort of equivalent to like a surgical face mask, the ones that don't have a perfect tight seal around the face. These are actually designed to be worn by someone who is sick so that when they sneeze or talk, they don't spray viral particles everywhere else. So it's basically oh. protecting the people around the person wearing the mask. And so because of this, that's the way the mask is designed, right? If, you, if you're wearing the mask and you take a deep breath in, air is going to get sucked in from all around the sides of it. You're still going to be breathing the air in, mm. in the environment. And so because of this, people are, you know, saying stop hoarding masks, stop buying them. All you're doing is preventing healthcare personnel from, being, from having access to the masks. But I do want to say one other thing about the masks. It's not like they're useless, right? I mean, I wear a mask on shift. Uh, cancer patients on chemotherapy oftentimes will come in wearing a mask. Of course, it does provide you some protection. It's not going to be foolproof. It's not designed for that purpose. But of course, it's going to give you some protection. And I think that's why people are running out and buying them. Like there is some validity to that. So it might give you some protection. But if you're doing the things that are being recommended right now, you're doing hand washing, you're staying home, you're not going out to public gatherings, then you don't need the mask. I need the mask. The people working in the ER and in the hospitals, we need the masks. We need to put them on sick people. We need to wear them when we're walking around the hospital. So stop buying, stop hoarding that, and also please stop hoarding toilet paper. Why toilet paper? I don't know why. You know, I thought my thinking behind, behind the toilet paper uh, craze was that when we did the influenza episode, 
we asked people that weren't doctors and or in the medical field and everyone most people not everyone most people thought that when you get the flu you get diarrhea and throw up and i'm thinking that people are thinking like oh coronavirus kind of like the flu but worse which means worse diarrhea i'm gonna buy tp yeah it's uh humans are very interesting you know there's plenty of production of toilet paper even during like outbreaks of diarrhea if people didn't hoard it there'd be plenty of it but what happens is when somebody goes and takes enough toilet paper for a year and then another person and another person there's not enough for everybody else so stop hoarding just stop it Okay. Yeah, worst Stop comes it. to worst, we just go back to what we used to do before toilet paper was using old Sears catalogs. Exactly. Sticks, twigs. <laughs> I think Sears is closed, so. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> we are screwed. Sarah Peaks is calling me. Gotta have it. We agree. There's more for your life at Sears. Uh, one thing I've heard recently is about blood types how some blood types might be more susceptible than others. Mm-hmm. This this sounds really strange. Yeah, I saw that as well in the news. And I think there's a couple of interesting phenomena at play here. So this is a very scary time. It's a very potentially deadly virus. And the medical community, I think, is doing anything that we can to try to identify any risk factor um, for who could get more sick with coronavirus. So Information is being shared, and normally it wouldn't be shared this rapidly. It would go through peer review, and it would be very scrutinized before being released and published. But right now, since it's such a scary time, lots of data is being released that's unvetted. Oh, no. And when you look at massive amounts of data in hindsight, it's very easy to reach conclusions that are potentially wrong. Like if I said, hey, I want to look at all the patients who have had heart attacks in the last year, and then I'm going to look at how many of them like to wear hats and how many of them prefer chicken over beef and just like a bunch of kind of random data points, you will find associations between liking to wear hats yeah, and people that drink water attacks. get coronavirus. Sure, right? You're going to find associations and whether or not those are true and valid and one causes the other, who knows? Great. So the medical so, community has turned into Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, Facebook is the other problem here because we have this desperation uh, for information and that's amplified by social media and by media hysteria in general. And so we latch on to these ideas like blood type. Who knows if blood type is a real thing or not, right? Who knows if there's any validity? No, it's a real thing. This. There are blood types. There are blood types. <laughs> but who knows if this has any effect on your right. severity of coronavirus? Right. It might, it might not. But, you know, that's just the example here. Uh, but the it's easy for the media to latch on to that and then start just blasting it out to everyone and putting a bunch of fear in people about something you can't even control about Speaking yourself. Speaking of that, what about ibuprofen? That's like the one people are getting freaked out about. Yeah, so there's um, this ibuprofen thing is one of those examples of the media sort of taking something and running with it. So there is, in theory, there could be a problem with uh, ibuprofen because of the thing that it does to your lungs and there's receptors in there and that's how the virus gets in. But the official statement right now by the WHO, the official statement is that you don't have to avoid it. Having said that, if you've got a fever and you're feeling sick and you've got muscle aches and pains and you've got two bottles of um, analgesics and antipyretics, anti-fever medicines in front of you, and one of them is Tylenol and one of them is ibuprofen, 
Right now, I'd take the Tylenol, all things being equal. So it's probable that the ibuprofen isn't bad, but if you've got a choice, I would just take uh, acetaminophen or Panadol or whatever you, whichever country you're in rather than the ibuprofen until we get more information. And by the same token, if you twist your ankle and now your ankle hurts, I would take the ibuprofen because why use up the acetaminophen or Tylenol when we, we might want to save that for later? You might want to have that on hand. So if it's something else and you have the choice, go for the ibuprofen. It seems instead of toilet paper, people should be buying Dayquil and NyQuil and Vicks VapoRub. Let's not, and... <laughs> let's not fuel the fire here. There's, all, you know, this, this, this information about... Lots of Earl about... Grey tea, <laughs> lots of honey... There's already a shortage and they're already rationing acetaminophen in some countries in Europe because of this, this uh, you know, potentially false information. Speaking of which, what about this chloroquine stuff, this like magic bullet of uh, that can just eradicate coronavirus? Yeah, that's a really important one to talk about. So chloroquine is you know, classically used for malaria. It's used much less now because the malaria got smart and got resistant to it. And so this is a little complicated but the summary is we don't know. We'd love to believe that chloroquine is going to help us uh, fight this virus, but we don't know. So if you take sort of the coronavirus and you put it in a test tube and you put some chloroquine in there, looks like the chloroquine will make that virus not work very well. So theoretically, that would be good. But here's the big concern. Uh, we've had other viruses and there's this great one called chikungunya is a great example. It's this uh, crazy virus with a crazy name. And the same thing happened with that virus. So you put the chikungunya virus Sounds in. Sounds like something and then you from Kentucky the... Fried Chicken. I know. I love the chikungunya. <laughs> I love the chikungunya. So you put that virus in a, in a vial and then you put some chloroquine in there and it looked like the same thing. It reduced the virus like replicating and doing the things that viruses like to do. So they started giving it to patients with the disease and it made them worse, not better. So... We've got to be really careful. We have to sort of study this, and it is getting studied now, and hopefully we'll have some data soon that if you're sick, um, some patients are going to get chloroquine and others aren't, and we might have some idea. But there is no good evidence right now as to whether it's helpful, and it really makes me anxious that it you know, could be bad for you. We just don't know. So don't just go taking chloroquine. And people, I guess, are already trying to, to use this as prophylaxis and stuff. We don't know if it's going to work. And chloroquine itself you got to be careful that it's a little dangerous. If you take too much of it, it can give you heart problems. And if you've got a kid in the house, this is one of those medications that a very small amount in a child can be devastating, can be terrible. So uh, enough of the chloroquine already. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like just have a gin and tonic. Isn't gin and tonics what they gave soldiers in World War One for malaria? <laughs> It's right. It had a little of that in Something there. Like uh, that's that. all you need. <laughs> Dave was actually coming up with a cocktail recipe for coronavirus. Tell us what your cocktail recipe is, Dave. Uh, some part of gin, some part tonic water, and some part of elderberry syrup or liqueur with a twist of lemon. Like a garnish of Yeah, because elderberry or... is another one of those things that's running around the internet because it has antiviral properties or... Or it can be bad. It could, like, take away some of your immune system. I'm not sure what else. I don't know about that. I, I, heard, I, I saw it that. somewhere. But it falls into the category of, like, oh, maybe it's, like, echinacea and these right. other things that kind of help tea. you fight viruses. Like zinc and, you know, who knows if there's any validity to that either. But I, I like but it. it can hurt. I like it in the cocktail. I yeah. like the idea of a gin and tonic with some elderberry syrup and maybe, like, a lemon twist or something, you know, like a little or zest, lemon zest in there. 
I heard a good one yesterday. A friend of mine said, well, I've been seeing these ads for um, these copper things that you shove into your nose because uh, <laughs> copper means- kills the virus. <laughs> and so should I do that? I'm like, well, actually, it is true. If you take the virus and drop it on copper versus on stainless steel, for example, it will kill the virus in about four hours on copper and it can live on stainless steel and plastic and stuff for maybe a few days. So the problem with that is you have to leave that copper thing in your nose for at least four hours. I heard that's going to be very uncomfortable. If you take two pennies and shove them up your nose and take a selfie and post it, you will definitely prevent coronavirus. <laughs> so please, world, do that. There was also another crazy one about um, it was posted in some gyms and stuff that since there's no test, what you have to do is you have to take a take deep breath in, and if you can hold your breath for ten minute, ten seconds, you don't have coronavirus. That's the most ridiculous yeah, no, thing I've that's, there, another. There's a lot of kind of false stuff going around the internet. Things like drink warm water instead of cold water. One uh, was if I have a dry throat that the virus will fly into my mouth and hang out there for a little bit. But if I'm constantly drinking water, if the virus flies into my mouth, I will immediately wash it down into the despair of my hydrochloric acid type ass stomach acid and it will just, just destroy it. Sounds like a nice idea. But... Nah. Yeah, how many calories in coronavirus? <laughs> um, what about if coronavirus is on food? If somebody is making food and they and they have coronavirus and they cough onto your food, can I put hot sauce on my food and kill that <laughs> coronavirus? I mean, and think about it. Think about think about the question because I almost think it could work if the hot sauce was made with white distilled vinegar. It will only work if you mix that hot sauce with some elderberry syrup (laughs) and tonic water. Okay, what about the big debate between hand washing and hand sanitizer? Which one's the most effective? They're probably both equally effective if you're doing good hand washing and, for that matter, if you're doing good spreading of the hand sanitizer around your hands. But hand washing is more important when you think your hands are actually soiled with something. Um, So let's say you got a little poop on your hand or something. Uh, Hand sanitizer is not going to be as good as washing and lathering with soap and water. So if you think you're just, you know, you touch something that someone else may have touched, hand sanitizer is just as good. Also, that hand sanitizer kind of builds up a film on your hands over time. And eventually, you just got to wash that stuff off. What is the highest temperature at which the virus can survive? Don't know. I think where that question is going is that other coronaviruses and flus tend to be seasonal in part because in the hot weather, they die faster. So that if you do have it and you sneeze and it's a hot day and there's lots of ultraviolet light, then it dies much quicker than when it's cold and in the winter. Um, so we are hoping, hoping that this coronavirus will show that same thing. So when we get into the hot summer months here in the Northern Hemisphere, that maybe the infectivity will go down and that will help us flatten the curve. But we don't know yet exactly for this virus because sometimes there have actually been flu outbreaks during the summer months. So it's not a guarantee, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that when the sun comes out and it gets warm, that this will go away and give us more time to get a vaccine. Is it, is it, um... Bringing home fruits and vegetables from the grocery store, should we be concerned about coronavirus on that? And and should we wash our fruits and vegetables? Just saying this, I think I know the answer. Yes, yes. <laughs> Regardless of coronavirus, you should be washing your fruits and vegetables. Yeah, you should wash your fruits and vegetables all the time. Um, if you're really worried, I mean, 
let's say you get a pear at the grocery store and someone sneezed on it um, or someone pooped and didn't wash their hands well yeah. and touched it. Um, you know, who knows if you get it that way. Um, you buy that pear, you bring it home. Good idea to wash it. Yeah. Just set it. Maybe maybe buy the one that's not the most ripe. Maybe buy one that <laughs> needs a couple days and just sit it out on your counter and let it sit there and let things die on its surface. Yeah, I think I'm more pear. worried about E. coli than I am about coronavirus yeah. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> that's probably way more likely to get uh, E. coli. Oh, oh. Is there something, have you heard anything about these strains? Like there's an L strain and an S strain of the coronavirus? Yeah. So the thing with these uh, viruses is that they change. So yeah, there's already probably four different types and they're not really different than they seem to be acting about the same. But these viruses, you know, they're getting spread from person to another person to another person. And there's like, each person doesn't have one copy of the virus. Each person has billions of copies of the virus. So it's replicating and replicating and getting passed to people and getting passed to people. And so it's mutating. The good news is that most of the time when these viruses go through these mutations, they actually usually become less virulent, uh, less deadly, less bad um, than getting worse. But it's it's possible that they get worse. But most of the time is that they get less worse over time. We know from this virus from the original reports in Wuhan, it was way more deadly in its uh, first form than when you passed it to somebody else. So if you actually got it from wherever it came from in those first uh, few days to weeks, it looks like it was much more deadly initially than it is now. So this appears to be following that same thing, but um, these do change all the time. And that's also the problem with them is that um, even if you develop a vaccine or even if you get infected, it's possible that in a few years, if this thing is still hanging around, it might change enough so that that um, vaccine doesn't work or the fact that you got it before may not be 100% protective. It might be a little bit protective, but not completely. So these little viruses are always changing. It's the problem. Can I get the flu at the same time? That's a good question. Yeah, so the flu does not protect you against coronavirus. <laughs> but I understand where where the question is coming from because a lot of people are doing a test for influenza and then saying, ha it's influenza. Therefore, you probably don't also have coronavirus because what are the odds of having two things when... Exactly. That is my whole theory behind walking down a dark alley. <laughs> if I am going to walk through a dark alley, I say, I'm going to be the mugger. If I see somebody, I'm going to mug them. And then I'm free to walk through down the alley because two muggers can't exist in the same place at the same time. Very unlikely that two muggers try to mug each other. So, But, uh, but similar idea here, right? What are the odds that you have both diseases at the same time? Yeah. That's, just, that's just unlikely, it seems. However, this data is changing pretty quickly. Initially, we thought that that was really, really uncommon to have both. But newer reports are coming out saying, like, maybe that's not as uncommon as we thought. Maybe if you have influenza, we should still also be testing you for coronavirus. And that's highly dependent on where you are regionally and your health department and who's seeing you. So it's so right now, uh, no one really knows the answer to that. It's probably highly dependent on where you are. So how long can we expect to be living like this? When is it going to end? That's a tough question because um, it would have been easy to tell you if they did nothing. So if you just sort of let this virus go, you could ask the smart epidemiologists with their smart computers and they'll say, uh, this would be over in two months for most people, but then there would be millions of people dead. So what we're doing with this flattening the curve is trying to spread this out. And uh, it just depends on how effective that is as to how long this is going to go. But it'll be months, I think, months where here in the United States where we'll be trying to do this flattening the curve thing. 
Then the other thing that can happen is, okay, so you do this for a couple of months and the cases go right down and you haven't overwhelmed the hospitals. And then you start to say to people, okay, you can start going back to work and do your normal things. And then the virus takes off again because not everybody's infected and not everybody has an immune reaction to it yet. So sometimes it's not actually flattening the curve. People are now talking about flattening the roller coaster. So you flatten it now, get it under control, let people go back to work. But if it starts to pop up in uh, some place here or there, you might have to do it again. Probably not as bad as the first time and probably much more regional. It might pop up in places where it didn't take off. So expect this is going to go for a while. This is going to be a few months and you know, isn't going to be completely over until we can get a vaccine or something because it might become part of, um, like with seasonal flu, we don't know yet. We might have a little bit of this coronavirus every year. Um, I like this kind of this last question here. What as, you know, Joe Citizen can I do to help with all this? Um, Is there anything I can do to help hospitals with supplies? Can I donate money? What can I do for businesses? I was thinking like buy gift cards to businesses to help them while they're through this time. Like, well, what can I do? The most important thing you, you can do right now is to follow the sort of social distancing guidelines. Stay home as much as possible, or at least stay away from other people as much as possible. Let's flatten that curve. Let's slow down the rate of infections that people are getting. Really take that seriously, because we don't want to overrun the healthcare system. We do want to spread this out over time so that we can find uh, vaccines and uh, therapies that might helpful, be helpful. That's the most important thing. You know, the economy has taken a huge hit and there's not much you can do as an individual um, for that. But if you've got a favorite restaurant and stuff and they're still uh, letting you do uh, home delivery, then that's a great thing to do. Make sure that uh, you tip well and get some of the food that way. Um, People have asked me, actually, is that safe, though? Let's say that it got made by somebody that had coronavirus on their hands and then they handed me the plastic thing. So you It's unlikely in cooked food and stuff that the virus is going to survive on that. But the plastic bag that they put it in, if they sneezed on their hands and then you've got that plastic bag. So you might want to wipe down just sort of the covering of of the plastic bag or whatever the food comes in just for a little bit of uh, extra sanitary, to be extra sanitary. And you can take the food out of the containers and then wash your hands before you eat. That might uh, reduce your risk as well. But it seems that the risk from home delivery and stuff is probably pretty low. Or you could consider buying a gift card. I mean, if you're in really the fortunate position that your income is not being affected by all of this, then whatever you can do to step up and help other people because the economy is going to get hit. So it already is hit so hard and it's going to be really devastating. So if you have a favorite restaurant, maybe uh, you want to buy a gift card and then you can go back and use that at a later date. Um, Anything that you can do to help keep other people afloat um, from the, the normal routine that you're deviating from, I think is helpful. I heard a wonderful story, and there's probably more like this, that of a couple elderly and actually quite well off, and they went to their f- uh, local restaurant and they got the takeout and they left a $10,000 tip. Wow. And they said this $10,000 tip is for all the people that work here and uh, we hope that it helps. And I'm like, that's a nice story. Wow. I, well, to kind of throw out like what we're doing, um, I'm not going to the gym anymore, but we also... St- didn't stop paying my personal trainer. She's still going to get a check from us at the end of the month, no matter how how long this goes on for, because it's built into our budget and she really depends on that income. And we're trying to do that for our housekeepers and anyone else that's sort of, you know, relying on us for some steady income. 
Yeah, that's great. Uh, we are the same thing. Our, because of the work that we do, um, we're not very affected by this right now because we do virtual sort of education and that's what everybody needs right now. So we still have good income and we're doing the same thing. There are some people that sort of come and clean the studios and do all that stuff and we're just paying them. Say, don't worry, we'll clean it ourselves. You stay yeah. home and we'll still pay you. So if you're in that really fortunate position, that's really helpful. So what did we talk about here? We talked all about coronavirus and remember that this is all true as of today. Information is changing really, really rapidly. We're learning new things all the time. Uh, we're probably at the beginning of our bell curve here in the United States, and we're trying to flatten out that curve by doing things like social distancing, keeping in mind that for most people, this is not going to be a severe illness, but for a small subset of the population, it will be, and it will be deadly. And we're trying to do our part to save lives. So stay home, try to prevent the spread of illness because you might have it, even if you're feeling pretty well and might spread it to other people and get them sick. So stay tuned. We'll try to get you some more updates on coronavirus as things change. Wash your hands. Stay away from people. Don't eat Don't bat. sneeze on each other. No bats. And finally, the one thing I think is on everybody's mind right now is Will there be more This Won't Hurt a Bit episodes after this? <laughs> it took a pandemic to get us back up. I know. It took a zombie apocalypse to like record yes. a show. Yeah, yeah we're going to come back to This Won't Hurt a Bit. We've really been missing it. We've been super busy and then a pandemic occurs and it's crazy. Um, Jess and I in particular are going to be really busy for the next few months. Um, Jess seeing patients and, and me sort of doing the education around this stuff. Once that slow down, we really want to get back to this one hurt a bit because, you know, it's the greatest podcast, they've, I'm told, greatest podcast in the history of podcasts. So we're going to be back. We're coming back. This One Hurt a Bit is a production of Foolyboo Incorporated, produced by Bill Connor. The information you hear on This One Hurt a Bit should not be taken as actual medical advice. If you have actual medical questions about actual medical things, you should see an actual medical practitioner. Even though we are actually doctors, we're not your actual doctor. So, be sensible and keep it real. And this, oh this. 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 This.